justice Everyone is crying out for peace yes. None is crying out for justice I don't want no From Radio Justice, D. Don Kamathi Studios in the Harriet Tubman Center in Mid-City, Los Angeles, this is the RJLA Community News. I'm Adam Rice. I'm Angela Birdsong. <laughs> and we do have a hell of a show for y'all today. Angie had a chance to sit down with Jed Perrier from Streetwatch LA to discuss Project Roomkey and what a complete failure it is. I believe we're currently sitting at 12%. Or less. Yeah. And who did Lawrence bring us? Well, Lawrence Reyes, he interviews Pacey Hackett, who is organizing workers at FedEx. Oh, excellent. Excellent. And uh, I had a chance to sit down with Paul Bowden, one of the main staff members for the Western Regional Advocacy Project. And we're going to talk about homeless policy and its complete failure in this time of COVID. But, you know, the, the base was laid for this over the last 40 years. So it's going to be a wonderful show. But first and foremost, Angie, yes. we have an update on City Hall. Oh, okay. what's the update? So, all right, take this out. So George Chang, who pled guilty to RICO charges in connection with bribing an L.A. City Council member, that would be Jose Wezar. That's, uh, that's the one who said he brought Wezar 400 grand in a brown paper bag to City Hall. Whoa. <laughs> I know. I guess it's good to be a councilman in the 14th district with developers breathing down your neck. Him and his company have donated to campaigns and office holder accounts of Eric Garcetti, David Rue, Marquise Harris Dawson, Gil Cedillo, Paul Caretz, Mitch O'Farrell, and Mike Bonnet. I wish I had a brown envelope with $400,000 because I would pay my mama's house off and my condo. I feel you. Well, and don't get me wrong. Nothing saying that uh, that all of those people that he donated to were in, are implicated in this scandal. Although Eric Garcetti's chief of staff, as well as Council Member Curran Price, were on the original FBI warrant, if I remember correctly. It, it's it's about to go down. So, did you notice uh, all the council members are coming out and they're finally distancing themselves from Jose Wezar after like two years of after he got arrested for this? Oh, uh, he's a piranha. I mean, you know, because, well, <laughs> you mean a pariah? <laughs> <laughs> Same thing. <laughs> yes. He's, he's definitely eating the flesh of the poor. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but that, he's been on there for two years. He's been under investigation. Weston took him off of all of the committees. Like the second it went down, Herb is like, <laughs> you got to be kidding me, bro. You fucking up the game. Get out. Delete. So delete, like, delete. Yeah. Yeah. And he, and he, he, you know, he wouldn't resign. Well, if you resign, you can't get an unemployment. I don't understand. But what he got that money for, Angie, is the major problem in this city. And when we talk about housing, that's where it's at. As we talk about what's coming up, as we talk about 630,000 people as of the last, last year's point in time count that are paying more than 80% of their income for rent. And obviously that's a government count. So it didn't count everybody's flow. Right. And all these people lost their jobs. We're looking at 100,000 evictions coming up. And granted, they can't file evictions for, and I'm talking about 100,000 in a month. I'm talking about ridiculous, apocalyptic, Great Depression numbers coming up. We need to be prepared for that. So let's not even talk <laughs> about the money yeah. that is being passed under the table for the unhoused. Well, that's the point. Ain't no damn money going on the table for no one. Ain't nobody paying for that. What they're paying for is to get different variances in their buildings, to make sure that they get subsidies from the city. Like, I mean, for example, it's interesting that, uh, and I'm sure Jed will get into it. What is it? Uh, 200 and some, 230, 250 million that the city invested in LA Live and specifically in the Marriott, yet they won't open it up for Project Room Key? Not at all. 
And that's the type of shit you get for 400 grand. That's a steal. Okay, I'm getting off on a rant. <laughs> that's okay. You got Jed. Wait, you got you got Jed on the phone anyway. So let's roll with this, right? Is Jed is Jed is Jed coming up? Yes, and Jed Parrott is with us. He's from Street Watch LA and he's going to give us an update on Project Roomkey and the government not moving fast enough. Jed, welcome to Radio Justice. Thank you, Angela. Great to be here. Explain to us what is happening with our unhoused and what are those broken promises? We've all heard the, the term project room key, but we don't know what it is. We don't know if it's happening, but we do know that we have plenty of hotels throughout the state of California, if not even across the nation, but we're talking about California. So what is project room key and how has the government broken their promises? Yeah, so uh, I'd also say that, you know, just to frame this, you know, even before uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, there was already, and there continues to be a pandemic of, of hoarding, of capitalist hoarding of, of housing, uh, you know, vacant homes, vacant um, luxury apartments that are all over the state and this country and this, and this globe um, that, that has already been there. Now, this pandemic, what's happened is that um, the tourism industry is shut down, right? So you have all of these hotels everywhere that are completely empty in many cases, or almost empty, you know, 80 to 90% empty. Uh, and they're just sitting there during this crisis. And uh, so Project Room Key is, um, is the government, um, sorry, the, the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, announced this uh, a few months back. And at the time, as I recall, I, I thought he said he the goal was to get every unhoused person in California a hotel room because there are plenty, there are, more than enough vacant hotel rooms and motel rooms for every unhoused person in California. Um, but when the details came out for this project, Room Key, uh, the stated goal is 15,000 across the state. For an unhoused population, I believe is 150,000, uh, right? So that's not gonna do it. Uh, and in, in Los Angeles and LA County, uh, the goal is also 15,000 for a population of at least 60,000 unhoused people. What is going on here? Why are they not saying that the goal is to house everybody? Why are they limiting it themselves to 15,000? And when you go into the details, because, um, because they will try and make it sound like they're trying to get everyone indoors, you know, that they don't like to uh, reveal the fact that, that their 15,000 goal is, is really the idea is, is to get folks who are, over 65 and who are, uh, who are sick hotel rooms. Those are the ones who are prioritized for the 15,000 during the pandemic. They don't consider the, the other folks who are not over 65 and not sick um, as vulnerable and so not as deserving of a hotel room immediately. Uh, and yet the facts are that uh, houseless people, no matter how, what age you are, how healthy you are, houseless people are three to four times more likely to get COVID-19 than housed people. So, um, so it's a slap in the face, as my unhoused friend Devon Brown said, uh, it's a slap in the face to everyone else that, that you're not even stating that the goal is to get everyone in. Uh, and then let's look at the progress of Project Room Key. Um, the snail's pace of actually getting people into these hotel rooms. The stated goal is 15,000. That was almost two months ago. Um, I don't have the exact number in front of me, but, but the last number I showed was that about... 1,500 people in LA have gotten a hotel room. Um, it is, if you look at the charts, the, the pace of this is unacceptable. Um, people are out there dying right now exposed and there's all kinds of roadblocks happening. Um, and some of them are, are just are red tape. Some of them are, you know, if, most of them, all of them I would say are excuses. They're all excuses from from the elected officials who are protecting the, the corporate powers that be that are protecting the hospitality industry and they're hiding behind lawyers um, who are saying that, well, you can't commandeer because that is what um, the elected leaders should be doing. They should not be, uh, I mean, the time is, is over now. They've had a month and a half or two months now um, for hotels to voluntarily agree to be a part of Project Room Key. Again, we're talking about hotels that are totally vacant. They're just losing money sitting there. Um, and so, the, a lot of the elected officials have been trying to just reach out and say, please participate in this program uh, for the sake of humanity. Uh, also for the sake of, you know, as Garcetti would say, Mayor Garcetti, oh, your bottom line 
that he would even include that as being a reason is gross, but, but it's true. Um, these hotels are sitting there and, and the time is now uh, to say, okay, we've, we've reached out and, and enough is enough. If you haven't agreed to participate, we're going to use our executive power because the mayor, the mayors of California and the governor have the executive power during an emergency to declare that they are going to commandeer, use their power to say, we're basically expropriating. We're taking your, using eminent domain, you know, uh, during an emergency, we're taking your vacant hotel and, and, and using it to save lives uh, during this emergency. And I'm sorry, but, but that's just what's got to happen during this crisis. Uh, and that's what they should be doing. And they have not been doing it. And again, as I mentioned, the recent um, uh, things we've been seeing is that they're hiding behind lawyers uh, who are saying that, you know, the LA Times is, is quoting these lawyers who are, are property lawyers who say, well, you know, um, if you commandeer, actually, it's only going to make it worse. It's only going to delay the process because property owners have a right to fight it in court and contest that. And so it would be months long court battle before you could actually get people in. And yet you talk to other folks, uh, other legal folks who, who would say, well, maybe that's actually an opinion. Actually, during an emergency, during a, a a crisis like this, um, a judge could actually say, if you if you commandeered and they, and they want to take it to court, a judge could immediately say, this is a crisis, an emergency, and I'm sorry, but your hotel is going to be used right now for to save lives, to get homeless people in there. If you want to sue, you can sue, but it's not going to be right now. You cannot delay this now. Uh, you can do that later after this crisis is over, but right now there's an emergency and, and we're granting this government entity to commandeer your hotel. Um, right. So we don't know how that would play out. You know, it could play out both ways. But the fact is, why aren't the executives here, the, the mayors and governor, why aren't they even attempting to commandeer? Right. If they cared so much about saving lives, they would at least be trying to commandeer and, and, and see if a judge would side with them and say, no, you're right. We got to get people in. Uh, instead, they're saying, you know, I've heard, you know, representatives from other public officials and board of supervisors say, no, we're not even going to bother commandeering because it's just going to be delayed in court. How do they know that? Uh, and so it's it's hiding, it's it's uh, hiding it's behind up. bureaucracy. That's right. It's hiding, and it's also hiding behind and and I'm you know the hospitality industry and all these powerful business interests that are saying hell no, we don't want you to commandeer. We saw, uh, I heard that um, one hotel, a big hotel in LA, was open to uh, having houseless folks stay, and their insurance company stepped in and said, uh, that's not a good idea because, um, and you should not do that because they worried about property damages. And what does that say? So, so they're worried because what they think homeless people are going to damage property? Why? Like, what is that? What does that say? Uh, that, that sounds like discrimination. That sounds like you're saying homeless people are somehow dangerous. Um, right. That's, that's disgusting that, that, that would be, you know, or, or people, you know, we've also heard that hotels potentially are resistant because they feel their reputation would be tarnished, uh, that they would be known as a COVID hotel or a homeless hotel. Uh, right. So this is folks who are looking out for their bottom line and looking out more for their business and property values than human life. And that's disgusting. And, uh, they need to be shamed and this needs to be exposed, uh, again in the days and weeks ahead because, uh, yeah, we, you have, again, uh, so many people that were already, as I mentioned, there was already a pandemic. There was already a crisis before COVID. You had three people in LA dying a day on the streets. Three homeless people on average were dying every day in LA. Uh, they should have already been opening hotels to people uh, and vacant properties and, and using eminent domain. And now they really have to do it. And, you know, we even have uh, council member Mike Bonin came out. Um, there was an LA Magazine article where he said, you know, we need to look into these uh, why these hotels are not participating in Project Roomkey. Because if it's simply that they're being advised that, well, putting homeless people in there will quote unquote damage either their property or damage their reputation, uh, that could be grounds for a civil rights lawsuit right there. Uh, and we need to get to the bottom of this. And, um, and, and that's where we're at right now is that the snail's pace of Project Roomkey, you have all these uh, vacant hotels everywhere, literally in LA Live and downtown, you got roughly 5,000 hotel rooms that are vacant, uh, take, and that's about the same number of homeless folks in Skid Row, just a mile away. So, what's up with that? Um, right. So now, with with the state looking at um, you know starting to reopen, how does Project Room Key fit into the reopening phases? 
And that, that's a big question because, you know, I would argue, well, how quickly are you talking about you? Do they really think that the hotel and tourism industry is just suddenly going to go back to normal next month? Of course not. Nothing is. <laughs> come on now. Be, come on, man. It's going to be at least till September or like if that, that's months. That's, I, I think the whole summer, these hotels are going to be empty and you're going to say that now we're just going to back off. So, so no, they're trying to, again, and, and that's another point. They're trying to hide behind that. Well, we're reopening. Uh, I've heard that Project Room Key has slowed down because of that also, that, that they feel, well, you know, we've done enough. I think we're going to, you know, wait and see where we're at before right. uh, pushing more, which is ridiculous. Uh, we should also, I have to remind folks, a lot of these hotels across the state, and again, I mentioned LA Live, the big ones downtown, the epicenter of gentrification in LA, hello, um, those hotels in downtown, amongst many others across the state, have gotten a lot of public dollars, public, public subsidies to pay for them. Although we're talking about um, the Marriott Ritz got 270 million in, in public subsidies, right? Uh, roughly a billion dollars committed in downtown alone for hotels. So we could argue, I'm sorry, that's not private. Those hotels are, are the public has a stake in those hotels too. Excuse me, we're paying for that. It's on stolen land, right, already. Um, if, you want, if we want to talk about property rights, we have you know the county supervisor, Catherine Barger in LA, uh, Republican was coming out saying, you know, uh, these hotel owners have a right to say no to, to commandeering or a right to say no to Project Room Key. I'm sorry. Did the indigenous people have, have a right to say no when, when Europeans came and murdered them and took their land? I'm sorry, but, but no, no, no. You can't be talking about property rights right now um, with this injustice um, that, that continues and is just, just absolutely uh, a further uh, escalating under COVID. Um, and, and they're all trying to hide behind, we're doing enough, we're doing all we can. They're absolutely not doing enough for all they can. And, and it's because they're in bed with, with money. And, uh, and that's the fight right now. And right. Corporate greed instead of um, community needs and people's needs. So Jed, with Project Room Key, their housing, you know, when they, when they, you know, let's say they do have everybody in their, um, in the hotels, the, the unhoused are housed and protected during the pandemic. When the pandemic is over, how does that exodus look? Yeah, so um, I, I would say this, and you know, we so so there is a, a coalition that formed um, a few weeks ago to to pressure uh, these elected officials who can, who have the power to commandeer. Uh, it's a coalition called No Vacancy California, and a lot of these are grassroots organizations who are doing on the ground work or in the trenches like LA Can and Skid Row, um, you know, the Coalition on Homeless of San Francisco, East, um, East Oakland Collective, uh, just to name a few. Um, but the pressure is, is on, on them to commandeer. And, and I think all of us would agree, you know, it's not written in our demands, but, but it has been talked about you know, when you ask, when you're asking about what happens after yeah, what in. happens afterwards? Because that, so, that's, that's going to be a sad state of affairs, right? So our, yeah, so our demand, and it's not in the demands, but, but a lot of us, uh, our plan, and even folks, by the way, it, the nonprofits, the big, like United Way and some other elected officials even have suggested converting some of these hotels into permanent housing. But our, what we would say is that no one that is uh, admitted into Project Ruben Key should be evicted back to the streets. Absolutely not. That should not happen. And we will damn sure make, uh, you know, be, be on the ground looking at that and looking at these hotels that have, have placed houseless people into them and say, no way in hell are you going to say, okay, it's over. You guys are, go back to your encampment. You're done. You're out of here. Kick you out. No, 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 no. People have, should stay in those hotels until a permanent solution is found for them. Or perhaps, as I said, it's already been talked about by some, some very official, you know, nonprofits and electives. Or maybe, maybe some of these hotels and motels can be converted into permanent housing or transitional housing uh, of some kind, right? A hotel is not ideal for long-term uh, housing because it, a lot of hotel rooms, almost all of them, don't have kitchens, right? right? That's the key piece, right, for permanent housing. You got to have a place to cook. A uh, refrigerator, you know, it's big enough. Um, so so that, that's the thing. But, but let me tell you, you know, everyone I talk to on the street, uh, almost everybody says, I would take a hotel room tonight. Uh, overlooking in my tent. So, of course right, they would, so right, yeah. How, how, you know, so how do you shelter in place without, without a home? Um, and 
And so, yeah, I think, I think the idea is that no one should be evicted from these hotels back to the street. Absolutely not. And in fact, uh, they should demand permanent housing after that. And that's process. probably why some of the hotels are slow to move um, anybody in there because they're thinking, well, what is the exit plan for, for this? Absolutely. It's, uh, you know, I, I know for sure that that's what <laughs> they're worried about. Um, and yet, you know, I, I'm sorry, but this is, this is a moment right now. What do you stand for? Human life or, or, or property? And, oh, pro- yes. And, right. And, okay. You know, where, where do you stand on this? Because I'm sorry, but um, the more and more this goes on, the public is going to be, uh, it, it, their, their opinion is shifting on this. Let me tell you, their, their opinion is shifting on this. They're, they're out there, you know, Again, they're trying to hide behind behind a lot of stuff. The mayor, you know, claims, "Oh, we're doing all we can," and "Oh, there's a room. We have rooms for people tonight." You know, we, we, the, we're meeting the demand. He said things like that. We're meeting the demand uh, for hotel rooms. Are you kidding me? Do you know how many people I talk to that say I would love to to be part of Project Room Key, but I'm not eligible because I'm not old enough or I'm not sick? Right. Right. And what about the what families? Yeah. Men what about with children? That's right. And men we, with you know, children. That's right. And if you look at our no vacancy demands, we, we, we include that too, as saying, you know, you got to accept families, you got to accept people who have property and, and that they can bring their stuff in uh, and not criminalize folks, not treat them like prisoners. Um, and also get the hotel workers back to work, right? There's a lot of folks who used to work at those vacant hotels that are now on the verge of becoming homeless themselves. Um, so there's some solidarity between, you know, the, the, the workers there. Right. Uh, now, with Project Room Key, is, is there some type of subsidy that, that the city or state is giving to these hotels? You, you mentioned their, their bottom line um, may be covered. And if that's the case, does the city or the state have, have insurance to meet the gap in whatever the insurance companies are talking about? That's a really good question, and it's it's messed up because um, it feels like a lot of those numbers are not clear, um, all the math there. Um, FEMA has offered quite a bit of money. I, I believe they've offered, you know, basically a reimbursement for whatever it takes. Um, don't quote me on that, but I know FEMA is a big funding source right now for that, um, you know, and, and maybe the, the main one um, at the moment. And, you know, the question is, when do those funds run out? Right. Like right. when, when does, you know, as you mentioned, it reopens, do they suddenly say, okay, we're reopening now we're cutting off our funding. Uh, but I'm sorry, man. I don't care. People will, will continue to say it costs money. Mayor Garcetti says you can't just give someone a room. Oh, there's all these things you have to pay for. And yet there he is a minute later giving another $200 million to LAPD. Um, so excuse me. Oh, there's ways you could pay for this stuff. That's money is no excuse. It's political will that's the, the problem here. It's political will. Oh, they, you, they could pay for this. They could find ways easily. And yet it's just that they're not willing to stand up to big money and big business. Our own Lawrence Reyes had a chance to sit down with Pacey Hackett, who's been doing organizing with Federal Express and definitely trying to organize around safe working conditions. Greetings uh, from D. Don Camati Studios at the Harriet Tubman Center for Social Justice. This is Lawrence Reyes, and you are tuned in to Radio Justice. And today we have Pacey Hackett, a Union Strong organizing sister from FedEx. And she's also going to be talking about the combined efforts of trying to unionize her shop with Amazon. Pacey. Well, first of all, you want to tell us anything about yourself? Um, yes, I have worked for FedEx a couple of times, unfortunately. Um, I worked for FedEx uh, uh, over a decade ago, and it was just a pathway um, for, again, uh, making rent and, and paying for those essentials that you need on a day-to-day basis. So I was there temporarily uh, over a decade ago, and then I left to pursue higher education and then also to get a better job. And um, I was with a better job, unfortunately. They relocated out of state and I was not able to follow them. So here I am again for a second term at FedEx and I've been there for a couple of years now. So I know the ins and outs from the um, 
workers, the, the loader's perspective, and also from a driver's perspective over a number of years at this point. So I know what was happening back then versus what's happening now, and not much has changed. So tell me, um, um, what did you go to school for? Tell us what you went to school for. Um, I, I went to school for IT, and I did get an associate's. Um, I was hoping to get into internet security, and I was for a short period of time, uh, about five years, I was working with a, a third-party technical support company. Uh, actually, I had made a manager position as the trainer and overhauled the training um, regiment there at that company and was um, <clears throat> decreasing the amount of overturn at that company with what I had installed, um, mostly with the knowledge that I had gained from going to school. Tell us, during this time of the COVID-19 and your efforts to unionize your shop and uh, stay in solidarity with the Amazon workers and um, all the workers that are being oppressed and being overworked. Um, could you highlight the concerns at the workplaces? What are the issues that workers face currently? Um, well, I'm, since I'm at FedEx, uh, I can say that I, uh, in particular, feel um, not necessarily safe within the work environment. Uh, PPE was rolled out very slowly. And unlike various other large corporations in the U.S. right now, FedEx is not being transparent with their confirmed COVID cases. And a lot of questions and concerns aren't making their way to the top individuals of the company. So we're largely unheard and unanswered. And with Amazon, um, a lot of their information has been voiced thanks to the efforts of Chris Smalls. Uh, Chris has pointed out variously uh, through a number of protests at this point that Amazon workers were not getting PPE. They weren't getting health insurance. Um, they were not getting uh, the necessary uh, cleaning of different stations that would have a confirmed case there. And they were being updated about those, those uh, confirmed cases with, with a very slow movement. Uh, it would be anywhere from 24 to about 72 hours before the individuals working there would be, con would be informed that yes, there was a case and there would be some attempt to clean the station, but that doesn't really instill a lot of confidence in the company when they weren't providing PPE to begin with. And there is no health coverage, especially for individuals who are making uh, basically minimum wage, maybe just slightly over depending on the state that you're in. How are your union organizing efforts? How's that progress going? Well, the progress is slow. Uh, FedEx is no stranger to the idea of unionization. They actually mm -hmm. attempted some years back and were unsuccessful. So that, of course, disheartened a lot of individuals who would otherwise be interested in a union now. But this COVID-19 issue really highlights the need for FedEx workers to try to push for unionization again as we look at the companies around us and see or read about the protections that are being offered elsewhere, including but not limited to hazard pay, and even their transparency so that workers can determine based on their health or living and family situations if the risk outweighs the work, basically. And at FedEx, we just aren't getting that. And it doesn't instill any confidence in the workers, again. And it isn't um, in, in the interest of the workers. It's definitely profit over workers. And, and FedEx as a company is no stranger to that. It's always been profit over workers. So this would really be the perfect time to get FedEx workers involved again for another try at unionization so that we can get the protection we need, we can then demand transparency, and we can feel safe without going to work and feeling like sacrificial lambs. Exactly. And, you know, being a union person myself, I know all we want is a fair shake. Uh, we want to seat at the table so we could talk about um, the bargaining and so we could talk about our needs and what, what we think it would take for us to be even um, as it is with strong workers as it is, as it is but having uh, a seat at the table would give us the opportunity right to be able to discuss um, how we could uh, improve the work environment improve working conditions 
Um, I, I want to go back to the transparency issue that you brought up mm -hmm. uh, in regards to your, your corporation right now is not being transparent in regards to the amount of COVID-19 or coronavirus cases mm -hmm. that are um, being suffered by, uh, by your coworkers? Yes, uh, at, actually at my station, there was about two weeks ago, one confirmed case. And I know, and I totally understand due to HIPAA laws, you can't release the individual's name. Right. However, they never released what the protocol was as well. So they found out that there was a confirmed case on Thursday and everyone showed up to work Friday morning and they informed us and we had no clue of how extensive the cleaning was, uh, who came in to clean, uh, how many individuals had been um, notified that they may have come in contact with the individual who had the confirmed case. And w throughout my questioning, I couldn't even get confirmed if common areas had been cleaned, such as the break room and the bathroom, because even though an individual may be in contact with someone, it's very easy that they may have been in the break room or the bathroom, so those should have been deep cleaned as well, and we couldn't get confirmation even on the simplest of, of questions such as that. So I believe that um, state, county, and federal law, and the regulations that have been set down by uh, the Centers for Disease Control state that if an individual is exposed to the COVID-19 coronavirus, that they have to uh, self-quarantine for 14 days and, and, and uh, speak to medical personnel. Uh, did you have the opportunity or did your, um, your co-workers have the opportunity to do that? Well, we were informed that yes, the individual who had the confirmed case would be quarantined immediately. So they did not come into work the next day. And we were told that FedEx has whatever contact um, tracing protocol within the company that they were following so that they could inform individuals who would have been in co close contact with the confirmed case individual. But at the end of the day, it doesn't instill, a, again, a, a whole lot of uh, confidence in the company when we couldn't get qu questions answered such as, was the bathroom, was the break room, was the belt, which everyone touches and it runs constantly. And, and it's basically a moving belt that if you touch, whatever you touch travels down, including the coronavirus, because <clears throat> in these stations, it's mostly metal and sometimes plastic. And that's pretty much what it is in a warehouse. It's a lot of metal and we know how long that that virus can live on those surfaces. So if you're in a four or eight hour period, it's very possible that any and everyone on that shift could have been affected. And you don't know what underlying conditions that person or their family members had. So to say, oh, a couple of people were sent home, it just, it wasn't sufficient for us. And a lot of us were very disappointed by it. Well, that is uh, still a thing that we're trying to determine since uh, FedEx is not transparent with pretty much anything, including um, what the procedure is for an individual who becomes sick, whether they're using their own time or have to apply for disability and this and that. They're, they're not even transparent with that information. They've been telling us that it's based, it, they are going to work everything on a case-by-case -case basis, which basically tells me personally that they don't want accountability. And so they'll look at this case and do a certain thing, but nothing's on paper so they can do something totally different with another individual. They did say that, okay, uh, that person was sent home and then anyone who was in contact with them was also sent home, but there's only a few shifts. We're not a 24-7 operation at FedEx. So when they said, oh, those people were sent home immediately because FedEx is not transparent, I and a few others tried to determine Who's missing? And not to out them, of course, or, or, or even uh, name them or anything to, with that respect, but basically to see, is anyone missing from a shift that would prove that, yes, people were sent home because they were in contact with this individual. And on a shift-by-shift -shift count, we haven't seen a decline in the, the number of employees who are supposed to report to work every day, which would suggest, and this is this can very much be reaching, I, I, I would uh, admit, but without the transparency of FedEx, that's what we're left to do. But it does suggest that 
very few, if not no one at all, was sent home. And that's very disheartening. You know, the reason why I bring up the exposure issue is because the exposure issue is a big issue. Um, you know, overtime is not hazard pay, right? So we know that when you have hazard pay, you have more rights uh, as an employee and as a worker. Overtime, you're just making money, but you don't have any hazard protections. So, so I'm asking you one last question. Um, and thank you so much for shedding light. Um, and we're glad here at, at Radio Justice to be able to, you know, shed light and, ha and give you a platform as a worker. Um, you want to tell me about Amazon a little bit and about um, the work that your sister's doing? And if you could be brief with that, because I have another question to ask you after that. Okay, yes. Um, at Amazon, we, we're, we're pretty much in the know about what's happening at Amazon, thanks to the work of Chris Smalls and the little organization that he is trying to build right now. And there, there is quite, the, quite a bit of support for that organization, including the uh, tech VP of Amazon, Tim Bray, who actually resigned because he sided with the workers and was a little dismayed about the fact that Amazon was retaliating against whistleblowers. But within Amazon, my, my sister does work at the uh, LA-based Amazon station in which we did uh, attend her May Day protest. Uh, and she is the one who facilitated that for that particular station. But uh, they were not getting the PPE that was necessary there was very, very little to no social distancing. And in a warehouse, anyone who's worked in a warehouse knows that it's very hard to maintain six, dis six feet of distance between yourself and the next worker. And not only that, but before all of this light was shown on Amazon, the um, warehouse worker force was not being offered any health care. And so in response to the things that were happening, mainly because of uh, the retaliations and the light being shown on Amazon, they finally started to actually um, offer healthcare. But it's all a display of show at this point. It's for stockholders, it's for PR. You know, if they were interested in worker protection or just their workers pre-COVID, then they would have done this years ago. Amazon is one of the richest companies on the planet. So they have more than enough necessary resources to be able to take care of their own. But while um, they could have implemented um, work restrictions, social distancing, they could have brought in PPE, they could have stopped sending non-essentials, and put individuals, the, the workers on rotation so that people would have the opportunity to uh, quarantine. Uh, they didn't do any of that. And so my sister, the station that she was at, actually has one confirmed death from COVID. And not only that, but they have several confirmed cases of individuals being quarantined from COVID as well. So that's very problematic for a company that has that much money, for a company that has that much resources, and yet they did not care until they started to get PR, which is why people power is so important for sure. Um, and, and my sister is very aware of this, which is why she headed up the, the protest to begin with. If we don't have public support, if no one knows what's happening, then Amazon basically gets to steamroll everyone who works below them and as working class individuals, we all know how harmful that is for us and that morally, it just isn't right. Every day when you turn on the news, you have to look at some blithering idiot lie to you about how this pandemic is playing out. Well, you're losing money, Well, you're facing being on the streets. And what happens when you hit the streets? the entire weight of the state focuses on you in a way that they probably should have when they had a chance to keep you in your damn home. With us on the phone right now is Paul Bowden from the Western Regional Advocacy Project. Welcome. Welcome back to Radio Justice, my brother. All right, brother man. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's good to hear from you. 
Yeah, it's um, good to hear from you. Good to hear you're still strong and healthy, man. Man, doing my best. Same, same to you, man. Do us a favor. Run us down. Let people know what is happening there. What is happening up in San Francisco? Man? What we need is a revolution, not a resolution. So, <laughs> like, we, we need to be focused on, like, you know, the politicians can say what they think is in our best interest, and we got to demand what the hell it is we really think we want and we need. And so, like, like in San Francisco, there's been a lot of, oh, we're not going to sweep people except these people, except if there's this many numbers of them. And, and, and what we're seeing here with fencing in encampments and stuff, you know, like we haven't seen the massive increase that has come in our way in terms of numbers of poor people that are now losing their housing and ending up in the streets. We haven't. Oh, yeah, yeah. We, we, got, we got we got till September, October is going to be 200,000 evictions filed at least. Well, actually, yeah. And that's just on the eviction front. And then wow. Columbia University put out some freaking study today, but they're talking about you know, 40% of the people that are currently on unemployment when that stuff runs out are going to be out on the streets as well. So like we're going to see compared to like what we saw with the Reagan revolution in the early 80s and wiping out HUD funding and the welfare reform of Gingrich and Clinton and the hope six shit with Clinton and the mortgage bailout stuff. We're going to see numbers that make those days look like the good old days. And if that isn't a recipe for a revolution, then we shouldn't be calling ourselves organizers. Like, this is going to be a, an actual manifestation of an injury to one is an injury to all. Because the, the, the line between being a poor person in a unit and being a poor person in the street has been wiped out. Man, has it ever. And we got to get real. We got to stop asking for stuff and demanding stuff. And we got to back up our demands with action. Well, speaking of that action and speaking of, uh, fomenting revolution now i mean as rap staff uh, western regional advocacy project you get the use you get reports from colorado portland uh, uh sacramento yeah. la so what what sort of picture is shaping up with the groups involved in the rap coalition well, on doing that this is where man i got i got a gig like i i love my freaking gig um <laughs> Is, is like what rap was created by L.A. Ken and by others to do was find the common threads that we're all dealing with. And we started the sweeps campaign after running the Right to Rest Act and seeing the kind of energy that generated, even though we kept getting our asses kicked. Yeah. And we got 11 cities, Austin, New York, and these other cities have all signed on to that and are all active part of that. And the law students that we're getting paid internships for to work. Well, no, 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 no. Break, break, break down right to rest for people real quick so they know what that is. Well, the Right to Rest Act was a response to years of community organ, like legitimate, accountable community organizing, but then checking ourselves and doing 1,600 street outreaches and documenting it to validate that standing still, sitting down, laying down were the top three criminal offenses that poor people that were houseless were being charged with. Yeah. And then we wrote a bill, like and worked with a bunch of lawyers that, that would listen to us and do what we told them. And we wrote a bill called the Right to Rest Act that decriminalized standing still sitting down, laying down, sleeping and eating in non-obstructive manners. Simple stuff. You're standing still and you ain't obstructing nobody else's whatever. Yeah. You're sleeping and you ain't bothering nobody because you're freaking asleep. That should not be considered a criminal activity. Agreed. We keep getting our butts kicked on the legislation in the state capitals. Well, let, 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 let's tell it how it is. We don't keep getting our butts kicked. We keep getting sold out. There, there's the difference. There's, there's no, there's, there's no fight for us. There, it's not like our, our, our champions well, have put it up and it's nice. But at the end of the day, they have. There's, there's the. 
the, the numbers also, are not uh, there to pass it because these people are bought out. I'll tell you, like, they keep getting sold out. We don't, you know? Like, yeah. like, like the politicians are getting sold out and yeah. screwing us. Yeah. And they keep amending our bill and trying to make it more palatable and still getting their butts kicked on the final votes. But the organizing behind it, the simplicity, the, the contact where people that are actually living these situations and not just homeless people, SROs, day laborers, you know, like, like family groups, like, like, any, like the kids that, that are hanging out on the street corner and getting junk and, uh, gang injunction mm-hmm. jacking up from the pigs and shit. Like, like this, this bill says nobody, not just homeless people can be charged with loitering or sitting on a sidewalk or doing any of these activities just because you're criminalizing their presence. You're not criminalizing anything that they're doing because they ain't doing nothing that's messing with anybody. But you're criminalizing the fact that they exist. And homeless people experience that, but we ain't the first and we won't be the last and we ain't the only ones. How does Martin v. Boise, which, you know, I mean, granted, they have it like a year and a half ago now, so it seems like a billion years ago, but how is that being, uh, I mean, how, how were, I mean, because that, that is a federal court decision that the Supreme Court refused to overturn. They refused to even look right, at right. it. That states that you can't criminalize people for not having a place to go. How is that playing out, not only in San Francisco, Oakland area, but uh, region-wide? We got a a legislative or a a judicial decision that encompasses some of the the issues that were happening. Now, you know, in in Sacramento, they put out an awesome survey about the, they started using trespassing laws, which is not covered under the Boise decision. You know, that wow. like local governments and local power brokers and the military machine that we now that we used to call police departments are still called police departments mm-hmm. like they they see a decision like that. And it doesn't say you can't criminalize them. It says you have to have a place for them to go. Right. So they dictate what that place is and what it looks like. And then people have to choose whether or not they want to go there. If they choose not to go there, then what they're doing is considered criminal activity. Mm. And And it doesn't necessarily need to be an actual housing unit. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. There's nothing in the Boise decision that says you have to have a decent, humane, affordable place for people to live. There's nothing like that. There is, you have to have a place for them to go. And it has some language protecting the rights of disabled people in terms of what those accommodations look like. Um, There is nothing in the final judicial decision. And I think, you know, Boise became close to getting overturned just at the circuit level. And it wasn't, thank thank goodness, because it does give some protections. Yeah. But um, and then was refused to be heard by by the Supreme Court. So it is the law of the land in the Ninth Circuit only. Yeah, it does not apply to the rest of the country. Um, but you have to give the pretense of having some place for people to go in order to sweep a homeless encampment. Good. It's, it's better than a poke in the eye with a sharp stick. That's for sure. <laughs> But um, it's, it's not a human right to housing, and housing is not what you have to have in order to criminalize somebody for choosing to, for being in a position where they're sleeping outdoors. Mm. You know, that's why they call it camping. It sounds choiceful. Yeah. It's not. It's surviving. Exactly. Well, and, and speaking of surviving, and surviving what's coming up next, um, What's what have you been hearing from uh, from uh, the rap family about what sort of moves that they've been making uh, around the country? Um, you know, Denver is always um, the Wild West when it comes to no, nah, we ain't giving them nothing and we're going to we're going to mess with them mm. if, as they try to cover their butts and take care of themselves. So 
Denver is probably of all the rat member communities, one of the most aggressive um, in terms of, you know, the hell with you. And they're still using pretty large shelters there. So um, that's why Denver Homeless Out Loud is one of the fiercest member organizations you'll ever run across. Like these, these people are just relentless and accountable and fierce. Um, but all of them, you know, are, have massive numbers of empty Airbnbs and empty hotel rooms and empty motel rooms and, and none of them, you know, what, what's basically happened throughout the system because of the federal funding ultimately attached to this stuff through FEMA or through the homeless programs, through the McKinney Act. Um, is the coordinated intake, the rules and regulations for acceptance into a hotel room, the limited number of hotel rooms, the negotiating with the landlords, the process bullshit, the fact that, well, people can't just have a place to live. They need wraparound services, whether they think they need it or not. Mm. Um, and that is... The homeless programs, the continuum of cares, are taking over the COVID response at, because it's their lifeblood, it's their money, it's how they make their living. The gospel missions have been pushing behind the scenes and the supportive housing programs and the coordinated intakes and the, the local homeless coordinating boards. like. Like just like we've seen after earthquakes and fires at the local level type stuff where the needs of the community is the local government, the needs of the homeless people is the continuum of care process. Yeah, so and, poverty pimps abound is what you're saying. Yeah, and also the, the separation from the general community and everyone else versus homeless people. Mm -hmm. homeless people are them they're not us and so we treat us a certain way and we treat them through this charity based or not even charity more like oppressive based negotiated system that is dictated by the federal government because they're the ones that are paying for the shit um, and is incredibly who's worthy and who isn't worthy because we sure as hell aren't going to do a human right to housing for all people. Yeah. And these hotel rooms are going to run out. They're going to oh. go back on the open market, man. <clears throat> this ain't housing. Well, I mean, even, I mean, but that, that, that has even been just a choke with the complete failure of even local governments to exercise any sort of power. Like when we, when we're sitting on the street, they could definitely come and take where the hell we're sitting. You got empty hotel rooms. They, I mean, from last numbers, I heard project room key has 12% of its capacity filled at this point, And it's been three goddamn months. And it's not because there aren't people that need those rooms. It's because exactly. of the priorities that are set by the federal government because of the intake system that is created by, uh, mandated by the federal government. And it's because of the timidness of local governments to say, I don't want to hear this. I'm yeah. putting people into a hotel room so they're safe during this crisis. No, you tell me I have to do it this way as, as opposed to treating people as intelligent and functioning human beings. You're telling me I have to treat them as dysfunctional, in, uh, inintelligent, unknowing of what's in their own best interest. And so therefore, I'm going to do that because you're the Lord and Master, because you're the one that signs my check. Well, yeah, and, and you sign you sign my check with my goddamn money. <laughs> That's our money. Yeah, you know, they, they give four trillion dollars of it to people who don't pay any taxes, but us who pay taxes every time we go to the damn store and every year, it, we don't get any of that money, huh? And where we need to wake up, man, is we've seen this with the Reagan revolution. We've seen this with Hope Six. We've seen this with the contract on America. We've seen this with the mortgage crisis. Mm -hmm. Like, 
we, especially those of us that are talking about really poor, precariously housed or unhoused people, like we've seen this game before. This is not, it's so much worse, it's so much broader, it's so much bigger, but it's the same old wine in a new freaking bottle. And we need to not pretend like this is the first. This is unique. This is about the mayors only. Like we got to jam on the mayors. I'm not saying that the mayors aren't being oppressive. I'm saying that we've been down this road and disaster capitalism is already out there buying up mortgages and buying up units from poor people that are going to lose their housing over this. Yeah. And we're, we're writing demand letters. Like we need to, we need to get to the action phase of what it is we're going to actually do. Well, on that, and, 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 you know, no, no need for specifics, but what is the move? What do you feel that move is beyond just, you know, the, the, that general statement of the action steps? What do you feel could be some action steps? Because, I mean, we're listening to, uh, you know, this show is people are going to hear this not just on the West Coast, but, you know, Chicago, New York, North Carolina, South Carolina, all the way out to Ethiopia. Like, so what can people do to be jacking these people up? I mean, I think on the immediate front, we need to be calling out the national groups that are claiming to rep us. We need to be focusing on the homes for all bill, as opposed to this bailout crap that the Democrats are putting forward. You know, Omar's bill, or that's homes for all. Yeah. Like that actually is concrete, permanent, project-based section eight. So how affordable housing is available throughout the community for people that happen to be poor. There's no vouchers. There's no emergency shelter grant money there. It's about replenishing the affordable housing that was wiped out in the early 80s under the Reagan revolution. And so it's about and the fair cloth amendment gets overturned. So it's about taking neoliberalism a step back from the dominance that it has in how our federal government functions. And we, we need to tell the Sherrod Browns and the Maxine Waters and those guys, no, don't give us this half-ass because you think it might actually pass BS. Yeah. Give, us, give us the legislation we demand our representatives put forward so we can get what it is we need. All of us, not prioritizing veterans over kids in school, over disabled people, over left-handed people, over right-handed people. Forget that. And don't do your homeless management information system crap. Please. Don't. We don't want information on people that are homeless. We want to end homelessness. So get freaking real. And if the COVID response, shelter in place, stay home. People had no home. We're 37 years into our homeless program and we did shelter in place and people had nowhere to go. Yeah. That's a failed program. That's not failed people. I thank you for, for coming on, for doing this. Let people know how they can get a hold of you. Like if there's some groups out there, if they want to get involved or form something like, like rap, if they're in a different part of the, the country, how do people get involved? How do people get in touch with you and, uh, and get some guidance on that or get involved with rap? Well, I, I've heard my phone numbers on a lot of bathroom walls around. The <laughs> no, no, no. That, that's just in San Francisco. Man. Oh, okay. That's <laughs> you meant it in a different context. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, Rap home, W-R-A-P-H-O-M-E dot org. Simple, clean. Rap at Rap Home is the email. Raphome.org is the website. And everything on the website is, most of it is, is in English and Spanish. Everything is common or whatever that community commons license stuff. So it's right, all right. available. It's all free. We don't charge for artwork or information or any of the shit that's on there um and we're not patenting any of the shit if people want to talk about and, and hear about how the rap members pulled our stuff together man the the more the merrier 
and we're doing a stop the sweeps campaign. It's 11 cities. I hope like hell it don't stay in 11 cities. I hope it becomes 111 cities. So we're down. All power to you and fuck the police. And that's going to do it for us today on the Radio Justice Community News Weekly. I'm Angela Birdsong. I'm Adam Rice. All power to all oppressed people. And peace to you all, as long as you're willing to fight for it.